everyone welcome to another episode of the twimmel ai podcast i am of course your host sam charrington and today i'm joined by dan friedman dan is a phd student in the princeton nlp group before we get into today's conversation be sure to take a moment to head over to apple Podcasts, spotify youtube or your listening of platform of choice and if you don't already subscribe to the show be sure to hit that subscribe button dan welcome to the podcast thank you for having me I'm really looking forward to digging into our conversation. We'll be talking about your research that will be presented at this year's NeurIPS on the topic of interpretability for transformers, and you take a unique approach to that challenge. Before we get into that, though, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field of machine learning. Sure. So I'm currently a fourth-year PhD student in computer science at Princeton. I took uh, maybe a roundabout path to machine learning. So my undergraduate degree was in English literature. Oh, wow. And yeah, I kind of got into, I just took an introductory programming class in a junior or senior year, and I, I liked it a lot, and I kind of gradually pivoted. That's awesome. Yeah, so I did a little bit of research as an undergraduate, kind of in NLP and sort of computational linguistics a little bit. Then I worked for a few years as just a software engineer, um, and then I decided to go back to graduate school to kind of see see what was going on in the research world. Awesome. Tell us a little bit about your research interests. What have you been studying over the past four years? I'd say what I'm mainly interested in now is the kind of general topic of interpretability. So I'm trying to better understand how these machine learning models that we have now can process natural language text. Awesome. And are you specifically focused on transformers uh, exclusively in your research, or are you kind of exploring the topic of interpretability broadly? That's a good question. I think um, like the uh, research landscape has changed a bit just in the last couple of years. So now kind of like transformer-based language models are just like the sort of predominant uh, architecture, not just in NLP. And so that's kind of what I'm, I've been focusing on more recently. But I'm also, uh, you know, maybe more so in the past, have been interested in kind of like more sort of architecture agnostic approaches to interpretability, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, Some of the most popular approaches to interpretability, things like Lime, have been kind of come out of that architecture agnostic approach. But I think what you are demonstrating in your the research that we'll be talking about is that if you are aware of the architecture. And what's more, if you're able to manipulate the architecture, you can do a lot more with interpretability. Uh, is that broadly the the general idea you pursue with the research? Yeah, I would say so. I think like another uh, dimension of the point is just that the transformer has sort of proven to be incredibly effective architecture for sequence processing tasks. And so you can also think of it maybe as a way to sort of work backwards and say, could we take this model that works really well and try to like make it a little bit easier to understand the sort of rules that it's learning for all these tasks. And now your research falls broadly under the category of uh, mechanistic interpretability. Can you share what that means and talk a little bit about some of the approaches that we've seen thus far in the vein of mechanistic interpretability for transformers in particular? Yeah, this is a very good question. I don't know if mechanistic interpretability has such a precise definition. 
But I think in general, the goal is to try to like take these neural networks that we train to solve a task and try to reverse engineer what the model is doing in terms of some more human understandable kind of algorithmic components, right? So the models are operating in terms of high dimensional representations. And the goal of mechanistic interpretability is to try to see if there's any kind of analogy between what the the models are doing in kind of high dimensional space and some more familiar types of algorithms that we can think about and reason about as people. The mechanistic distinction is versus, again, like Lyme, I guess, or like observational or um, surrogate models, I I guess is another approach, like things that aren't like digging deep and, and trying to interpret what's actually happening in the model, but rather looking at, you know, outputs or relationships between inputs and outputs and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'd say one example of kind of a whole category of approaches in sort of earlier work on interpretability would be things like uh, feature importance. So say you have a sequence of texts and you have maybe a classifier and their interpretability method will output, you know, here are the, the words in your sentence that were important for making that, that, that prediction. Or a kind of another kind of approach is finding examples in the training data that were influential for that particular prediction. And so these are kind of methods that can give you some hints about what the model is doing, but they don't really tell you, they don't give you uh, what I would call maybe like a sort of algorithm level understanding. So kind of one specific test is you can't, one of these say feature importance maps, and then predict what the model will do on a new example. So I think maybe one goal or ambition of mechanistic interpretability is to give you kind of a, a representation of what the model is doing that you can sort of look at and simulate yourself. And it strikes me that in addition to just solving the problem of providing some interpretability, this research is also aiming to take on another important task, which is to help us understand these models, which are increasingly important, doing amazing things, and we're not really always sure why or how they're working. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So in the paper, you talk a little bit about some of the prior work, their approaches that look at attention heads, their approaches that look at various network representations. Can you kind of characterize the prior approaches and their, I guess, shortfallings relative to the approach you're taking here? Which, of course, we haven't gotten to yet, but we will. Shortcomings, I guess I should say. Yes. So there's just a ton of prior work on interpretability and I'm, I'm not going to do it justice, but I would give as a very kind of simple summary, I kind of think of two categories of prior work. So one is sort of line of work, just sort of in the NLP world on trying to understand models, like maybe beginning with BERT. So the BERT model that kind of sparked a lot of interest into, how, you know, how is this model so good at all these NLP tasks? You know, that work uses just a whole range of different kinds of methods for trying to like inspect different aspects of, of what the model is doing. So some of the methods I mentioned, like looking at, you know, feature importance or finding important training instances. And there's also some work on kind of peering into the internals of the model, like figuring out what information is encoded in the model's representations or, you know, trying to understand the, the role of different attention heads. And I think to me, what I see is like the main limitation 
of this body of work, or first I should say that is all this work has revealed a lot of very interesting things about how these models are, are kind of working, but it doesn't give us what I was kind of describing before as sort of algorithm level understanding. So it doesn't give us a complete or faithful description of how the model is, is making decisions. And so it's not really a type of understanding that you can use to say, be confident that your your model is always going to do what you what you intend. So for example, you can't verify your model in the same way that you would could verify software. That's kind of one category of work. Then I think more recently, there's been a growing interest in this new approach, which comes under the, the title of, of mechanistic interpretability. I think maybe um, responding to some of those limitations of the existing work in interpretability. And with mechanistic interpretability, the goal is really to kind of reverse engineer an algorithm that you can sort of read and see, here's, here's how the model is performing this task. It's represented as kind of neural network continuous co- computation, but actually we can sort of translate it to a format that's easier for us to understand. And so this is, has largely been focusing on you know, these large transformer language models, although there's also a lot of interesting work on small transformer language models. And I think, again, yeah, mechanistic interpretability has also revealed a lot of interesting things about these models, but it's quite hard to do. So it requires a lot of manual effort. That's sort of maybe problem one. And I think maybe a more general problem is that you actually you know, can't always be assured that there even is a kind of a human understandable description of the, what the model is doing, right? So these models haven't been trained to be interpretable. And so they could be processing information in all sorts of subtle and complicated ways. And so part to, to try to have some kind of automated interpretability and also to maybe give us a way of specifying more of our, our own kind of preferences about what kind of like explanation do we want. So maybe we can place more sort of bias the model to be you know more interpretable in some sense that we can specify. And now the approach that you've taken, uh, I forget if you use this term in the paper, but uh, design for interpretability kind of comes to mind for me and it kind of brings to mind like efforts to design for manufacture in engineering and you know automotive engineering for example or engineering of goods and or design for maintainability from a software perspective it's like you've got this end goal treat that end goal as central in a design process and come up with an approach that thus you know helps deliver it what were some of the inspirations for you in taking this approach so i'd say first there's been some prior work in machine learning kind of advocating for a similar goal of what is also sometimes called like inherently interpretable models or kind of intrinsically interpretable models. And a lot of that has come more in fields like like computer vision and for models operating on, say, tabular data and things like that. And so that's like kind of a motivation in, in general, but there hasn't been too much work in natural language processing. Then I'd say like a more immediate inspiration was a recent paper from Gail Weiss and collaborators called Thinking Like Transformers. And so this is a paper that proposes a programming language called RASP, which you can use for writing programs in sort of a Python-like programming language that can be compiled into a transformer network. This was kind of proposed to as a way of making it easier to reason about the kinds of things that transformers can learn to do. So it's kind of a computational model for the different types of information processing that this network architecture is capable of, but it also gives us this way of seeing the correspondence between the transformer and kind of a human-readable computer program. How is this type of program different from a 
PyTorch or TensorFlow program, which is also a Python program that represents a transformer? This is a great and uh, sort of philosophical question. I would say it's an alternative representation of what the model is doing. I mean, okay, so, so one kind of like direct difference is the PyTorch program, you can't read that code and understand what the model is doing because you have to also look at the weights of the model to understand the actual sort of solution. It's not really doing anything until it's trained. Right, exactly. And you know, you can plug in different weights and get completely different behaviors. So I think the analogy I'm thinking of is more like you take, say, a trained transformer. So you have it's defined by the architecture, but really by the weights. And can we kind of turn that into sort of human readable program? So you know, a human readable description of what those weights mean, if that makes sense. But yeah, you know, we sometimes think of a model as like a, a function. And in this case, the representation is richer than a simple kind of function transformation type of representation. Does that question make sense? Well, I'm not sure I agree, but I also might misunderstand the question. Yeah. So I guess I'm thinking of if you could express a transformer as like some, you know, if there was some way to mathematically express like some nonlinear transformation between the inputs and outputs as a transformer, that is kind of like what the program is doing, but it's not particularly interpretable and not as manipulable in the same way. I guess that was the thought. I don't know if it is helpful or gets us anywhere. Yeah. I wonder if it makes sense to circle back to this after we've gotten... A little bit further? A little bit further, yeah. To me, in a way, a fundamental sort of, in a way, philosophical question about like, what does it mean? So you have you could have two representations of the same the same system that are equivalent in some sense, but one is sort of easier for us to understand. Okay, let's come back to it. Yeah, okay. You're inspired by this previous work, including RASP and their Python representation of trained transformer models. And so tell us now about your approach and what you've done. So RASP kind of is this framework for writing down a program. So like a, you know, you can write, say, a transformer program that will solve a particular task, say a program that will sort a list. And it's designed so that this program is equivalent to particular instantiation of a transformer. So you can take the program and compile it into a set of weights for a transformer that will implement this program. But there's no way of training a transformer and decompiling it into a program. This is what we want to do, right? So you know, in RASP, you have to write all of the programs yourself, and then you can turn them into a transformer. But we'd like to just train a transformer, it can figure out its own solution, and then convert it back into this alternate representation, sort of program representation that we contend is easier to interpret. So that's kind of the high-level goal. And without getting into the, um, the weeds, basically what we do is we just design a set of constraints on the transformer weights that will guarantee that the kind of the corresponding model will always have a direct mapping to a sort of a RASP-style program. So one way to, to think about it is that every RASP program corresponds to a transformer but not every transformer corresponds to a RASP program. And so we want to kind of constrain our optimization to the subset of transformers that do correspond to programs. And so this is a, it's kind of a discrete optimization problem. So these are transformers that have discrete weights. They're kind of like constrained in various ways to keep things sort of clean and interpretable. And so we design a set of constraints and then can kind of optimize this sort of discrete model using a kind of a continuous 
reparameterization. So we use the gumpool reparameterization to, to search in the space of discrete models. Okay. To get a little bit further into the weeds, the constraints seem to be a heart of how you're able to construct this, you know, essentially a space that only contains representable transformers. The first of those is you require disentangled residual streams. What does that mean? Yeah. So this word, this phrase is kind of inspired by some yeah, prior work in mechanistic interpretability. And this is sort of responding to a problem with, you know, if you just train a transformer from scratch, it's not necessarily going to be interpretable, in part because all sorts of information is jumbled up together in the representations. So every layer can calculate something, and the transformer has these residual connections. So each layer will add its output back to the input, you know, from the previous layer. And so actually a lot of work in mechanistic interpretability is aimed at just solving exactly this problem. Like, how do you trace information through different components of the network, given that they're all kind of like over, you know, writing to the same place? And it's sort of by analogy to a computer program, you can think of the residual, the residual stream, these, the model's representations as kind of corresponding to memory in a symbolic program. And in an off-the-shelf transformer, all the variables are kind of being written on top of each other. Or you can think of like the same variable means different things depending on like the context. And so this first constraint is just to make sure that each kind of piece of information is stored at a dedicated address in the embedding space. And whenever a sublayer reads information from the residual stream, it's kind of constrained to only read a specific named variable from a dedicated address. And is this constraint, how's it implemented? Is it like an objective function constraint or is it a constraint between two training steps? It's a hard constraint. So is it architectural in the sense of? Yeah, well, maybe I can explain kind of more concretely. There's sort of like, you can kind of divide this into two parts. So one is reading information from the residual stream, you know, so reading a variable and the other is writing a variable. So when we start out the first layer of the transformer, we only are storing two variables. So one is the, the token identity. So if one variable says, what is the identity of the word at each position? And then we also have a position encoding that tells us what's my index in the position. So those are kind of two variables, tokens and positions. Maybe the writing part is easier to explain first. So we have each layer, say we have each attention head and each feed forward layer will calculate something based on the previous, the previous input. And then it will write a new, uh, some new information to the residual stream. And in a stand, standard transformer, this is just done by, by addition, but we just replace addition with concatenation basically. So each attention head will get its own kind of new block in the embedding space. You can think of it as its own dedicated subspace in the representation space that's reserved exclusively for its use. So that's kind of, you could think of it as an architectural modification. You implement the constraint by not doing the thing that the constraint that you don't want to happen, essentially. Yeah, this is like realized in the, you know, in the code, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of like, you could realize this kind of constraint with a regular transformer, right? So instead of concatenating, you could just have, you know, pad all of your embeddings with zeros and add, but, you know, the model could learn to, to do this kind of thing itself, but we don't think it has much of a motivation to. So that's kind of writing to the residual stream. So we kind of keep all the information disentangled. And then we also want to make sure that each model is reading kind of a named variable. And so in a standard transformer, this sort of 
you can think of reading information from the residual stream is sort of corresponds to taking some kind of linear projection of your embedding. So you have some learned weight matrix. You can think of it as, as reading off some information from some subspace of the residual stream. And we want to constrain the model so that this subspace corresponds exactly to one of these like named subspaces. So maybe we'll have some attention head that will read the token variable as one piece of information. And so the way we implement the constraint is by, instead of kind of learning this whole uh, sort of a free ranging weight matrix, we just learn a gate over the available variables. So let's say you have two possible variables you can read in the first layer. Say attention head, for each piece of information it has to read, it will learn kind of, you can think of it as a, a distribution over two possible variables. And this is the sort of thing that, that we train. And then once it's kind of like picked a variable to read, you can kind of like project that back up to get the corresponding weight matrix in a regular transformer. Got it. Talk me through the, the second constraint. You talk about modules in the paper. What does that constraint represent? So another way of describing that is that we have, you know, you can think of our program as we have some number of variables and we have some number of functions and each function will read some variables that have been kind of written earlier in the program. It'll calculate something and then write an output to a new variable. And so the second constraint is referring to that that middle part of each module will have to calculate something. So we also want to make sure that each model is, is calculating something in a way that we can translate into kind of a interpretable sort of rule-based procedure. So we want to make sure that each sub-layer itself is, is interpretable as well. Okay, awesome. And so you've got these constraints. How do you put those together to then generate the programs? Yeah, so in a sense, we can kind of read the program off directly from the weights in, you know, in this constraint model. So we kind of know what all the, the variables are, and we know what each module is reading. So let's say in our first layer, we can kind of look at the attention head, say. So an attention head, it's associated with, with three variables that it has to read, a key variable, a query variable, and a value variable. And so during training, it'll learn a distribution over the, avail- the possible variables for each, for each slot. And then after training, we can just sort of read it off, you know, say, what's the, what does it pick as sort of the most likely variable? And we can say, okay, attention head one is reading the tokens variable as the key, and maybe the tokens variable is the query, and the position variable is the value, and so on. So that's the first kind of bit of information. And then we can look at each module itself. So we have our attention heads and feed forward layers, and the exact procedure depends on the component, but those also we can kind of read off that are equivalent to the logic that that particular model is, module is implementing. And so the programs remain probabilistic because you're implementing that distribution or the distribution at these various layers in the programs? The program is not inherently probabilistic, although you could implement a probabilistic program within this framework in some sense. So to explain, we learn this distribution, like the way I would summarize it is we are optimizing a distribution over discrete programs. And so that's the, all we have all these gates, we have these distributions. So for example, for this attention head, we're trying to f- search for this distribution over which variable will attention head one read as the query variable. After training, we can just sample 
a discrete program from these distributions. Or what we do in our experiments is just take the, the sort of the argmax discrete weight associated with each distribution. So just take the most likely program. And so this is a discrete program that is not probabilistic. Got it. So at the end of your process, you, you've kind of baked in all of the sampling and there's ultimately a program that has a single output for a given input. Yeah. Maybe one more detail. The final layer of the model is just a regular linear classifier. That's the one kind of continuous part of the model. And the way I would think about it is we have the main kind of guts of the transformer is a feature extractor. And so it's a discrete feature extractor. And so every kind of sub path through this program is sort of answering a question about, about the input sequence. And so it's saying, yes, you know, yes or no, here's, here's some bit of information about the input sequence. And that's all discrete and that's all deterministic. But then you have a linear classifier that you can use in kind of the standard ways that you know, you'd use a linear classifier in machine learning. So you can have a kind of a stochastic decision rule, for example. Okay. By talking about reading the program from the model, I think was the terminology you used. Is there a one-to-one mapping, meaning every representation has a single program and presumably that falls directly from just the disentangled residual streams that gives you that one-to-one mapping? Or is it both of those constraints together give you that one-to-one mapping? It's both of the constraints together. Yeah, so there's a one-to-one mapping. There's some freedom in how exactly we express the mapping. So you can kind of write this sort of rule-based program in different ways, but the rules in a sense are are kind of like one-to-one. Okay. Can you articulate like what the programs look like without visual aids? Okay, so this is a challenge, but maybe I can. And there's a lot of examples in our paper, and we also have uploaded all of our learned programs to our GitHub repository. So you can download these programs and run them yourself. They're just Python programs. So I'd say the main bulk of the program is in representing attention heads. So what does each attention head do? The attention head, the kind of the the role of each attention head is defined by what variables is it reading? So what information does it read? You know, so say what keys and queries does it read? And then what's its sort of internal logic for deciding what token to attend to given a particular query? Maybe the simplest example is if we're kind of starting at the first layer of the transformer. The only possible information we can look at is the the token identity. So um, say what word is at each position and also this position indicator. And so one common thing that the model learns to do is it will say, well, at each position, I just want to look at the previous position. I want to see what word appeared immediately before me in the sentence. And so in the program that's realized by, first of all, we can see that this attention head is reading the position variable as the key and the query. So that's kind of part one. And then part two is each attention head will also be associated with a rule, which we call the predicate, which tells you for every pair of key and query, should I attend to that? You know, or for every query, which key should I attend to? So the way it looks like in the case of the position, you know, the look at the previous token rule is you'll have sort of a sequence of if else statements. And it will say if the query position is equal to one, attend to the key at position zero or attend to the, the token 
that has a position equal to zero and so on. So that's kind of a tension. And then we also have sort of a simple kind of feed forward layer, which is also, it's a, it's a series of rules. So we kind of express the feed forward layers as just big lookup tables. Let's say we're, we're trying to, to look for a particular bigram. So one example we have in the paper is for, um, you know, we train models to recognize whether all of the parentheses in a sequence are balanced. So if you have a sequence of balanced parentheses, or is everything matched nicely? And so one thing the model can learn to do is it can say, well, if I'm like an open bracket, if I'm an open parenthesis, and the next token is a closed square bracket, then this is an invalid sequence. Because if you open a parenthesis, you have to close it with a parenthesis before you can have a closed square bracket. And so that's the kind of thing that could be realized with the feed forward layer. So you'll have a feed forward layer, which will look at, you know, what token am I looking at? And what was the, the previous token? And just have a sort of a series of rules, a series of cases, basically, that say, you know, output this value if I see open parenthesis followed by a square bracket. How limiting is the constraint you oppose from a, a functional perspective? To what degree does it limit the ability to represent the types of transformers we might want to use? Does it enforce an overly simplistic transformer that, you know, that isn't practically useful? Or can you, do you retain the utility of transformers even with these constraints? Yeah, that's a good question. Definitely the constraints do, we are simplifying, we are kind of restricting the set of transformers we can learn. So we can't learn every kind of transformer. So one example that we can't have in our models is non-uniform attention patterns. So in these models, it's essentially, we have hard attention most of the time. So every query will attend to a particular, a single position, or it will attend uniformly to a number of positions. I think we didn't really do any kind of formal analysis in the paper about how expressive is this subset of RASP that we're, we're looking at. But I think some other work has, has found that even with these kind of constraints, the framework is still pretty expressive. And you can get more expressive and you can sort of get closer to like the regular transformer by adding more layers, for example. So you can sort of approximate this, this kind of continuous transformer if you just have you know more attention heads and, and, and so on. I think the bigger challenge at this point is, is more about optimization. For the things we're looking at, we can kind of manually write a transformer program that's expressive enough to solve a whole range of tasks, but our kind of discrete optimization method doesn't always succeed in finding those those nice solutions. I guess what I'm saying is even with this with these limitations, this framework is is quite expressive in ways that you can kind of work out or that follow from some prior work. And just so I understand the the implications of the last thing you said, you start with a given transformer, you're finding a representation. That's the whole thing. Yes, we're, we're searching within this constraint space. Right. So you create the constraint space. Is there a connection between a particular set of functionality or transformer that you want to represent? Or are you just kind of pulling, you know, sampling from the constraint space that you've created and trying to find interesting things? Because I really thought I understood and now I'm like... I wonder if I've made it sound more confusing than it is. We kind of define this distribution over discrete transformers. So we can kind of construct a probability distribution from which we can sample a set of discrete weights that correspond to a model within this family satisfying these constraints. And then we can 
optimize the parameters of that distribution using this Gumbel reparameterization. Sort of resembles uh, variational inference in some respects. So this is, we kind of can reparameterize these distributions so that they're differentiable. And then we can update, optimize the parameters of the distribution by sampling from these distributions and then using backpropagation to update the parameters of the distribution. So that's kind of our the optimization that we're doing. So the approach we take to searching within this discrete space. And you're not searching for points in the space that meet the constraints because the space is defined by the constraints already, correct? Yeah. You're searching for what? We're searching for the parameters of probability distribution over programs. I think optimizing might be a, a more... No, that, this is fine. But ultimately, you have this space defined by these constraints, and you conduct the search, and that search yields a program. Yeah, well, so the result of optimization is this distribution over programs, and then we just take the most likely you sample, program. Right. We sample, or it's this factor distribution, so we can you know, just take the argmax. I get it. So I think where my question is coming from is, so then you have this program that maps to a transformer. And I guess this is the point, right? You have a program that maps to a transformer. And so that is the the interpretability that we're looking for, because you've got this, this program that is a human readable program that you can inspect and understand what the transformer is doing. And I think what I was trying to connect to was, I don't want a random transformer. I want a specific transformer that does a specific thing. Can I somehow apply this method to get a program out that maps to my transformer? In a way, yes. In a way, no. So first, I should clarify that the program is it's trained to solve a particular task. So, you know, if you think of this sort of optimization procedure, we have this distribution of our programs, we sample one, we evaluate it on some batch of examples, and we see how well, how good is this program at this set of examples. And then, depending on the result, we can update our, our parameters to find a better, a better program. The search is task-specific. Yes. Yeah, okay. It's quite similar to training a transformer on a task, but it's training a transformer with... Yeah, you mentioned backprop. Yeah. Okay. However, you can't take a regular transformer. You can't download, you know, GPT-3 and get a program out of it at this, at this stage. And granted that you can't do that, are there like scale limitations or like inherent scale limitations to the approach? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I guess so we maybe alluded to them some a little bit before. So one is the, you know, maybe there's some limitation by the expressiveness of this framework. So maybe these simplifications mean that you can't, you know, you can't do all the things that you can do with a regular transformer. I don't think that's like a, a major, or like an insurmountable scale limitation. I think at the moment that the more of the scale limitations come from some of the difficulties of the sort of discrete optimization. So in some cases, we can, you know, we can manually write a transformer program. We can manually write a program that we know will like solve a task perfectly. But we find that our method doesn't always find these sort of good programs. I think that's because this sort of discrete optimization is is difficult. And so I think the more immediate uh, challenge to to scaling this approach will involve trying to come up with some 
better approach to, to optimization that can alleviate some of these problems. And to close out, we alluded earlier to some philosophical thoughts you have on the various representations for a given transformer. If you have various representations, like how to think about that idea. Yeah, no, I mean, another version of this question that comes up often is like, is is code or is a computer program actually interpretable? And you actually know if you've read anyone else's code, often human written code is not interpretable at all. It's very hard to understand. And I think the I would kind of think about this. I have maybe two two responses. The first is that R is some sense in which this kind of discrete representation of a program or an algorithm is easier to interpret because we can do a lot of things that are very hard to do with the continuous transformer. So, for example, a lot of prior work in mechanistic interpretability has been devoted to this problem of circuit identification. So figuring out, you know, finding kind of subgraphs of the model that form a coherent algorithm. With this program representation, that kind of problem is sort of trivially solved. And the other point is that we also have access to a lot of tools for interpreting these models that are not available for your kind of continuous neural network. So for example, you can take one of these programs and load it into the off-the-shelf Python debugger and set breakpoints and like step through the program and use kind of existing tools for, for static analysis and, and so forth to you know, inspect this model. But I think ultimately the probably the right way to think about it is to think about what are your goals in you know, interpreting a model. So it could be different people will have different interpretability needs. Awesome. Well, Dan, thanks so much for taking some time and sharing with us a bit about your research. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.